Hello and welcome back to another episode of my goddamn quest for happiness. It is time for the second part of my conversation with Andrew. I hope you enjoyed the first part. I know I left it on a bit of a cliffhanger there. (laughs) He was just about to reveal to us what the self-help narrative is and why that is our saving grace, so to speak. We had just been talking about the happiness narrative and the success narrative and why they are actually quite unhealthy for us. We are about to tackle the more healthy, useful alternative to that. If you haven't heard the first part of this conversation, I suggest you go back and do that because otherwise I'm not sure this will make a lot of sense on its own. But otherwise, I hope you enjoy this. Without further ado, here is Andrew Tidmarsh. Hi, and welcome to my goddamn quest for happiness. I am Anne Klein, actor, comedian and life coach. Okay, sure. This podcast is all about happiness. What makes us happy? What makes some people happier than others? And why can't I get it? I've been reading a lot of books. I've been talking to many, many people, watching lots of YouTube videos, rabbit hole, and I have discovered a few things and I would love to share just that with you. Let's think about what the antidote to that is. And the antidote to that is the self-help narrative. Which is also bad. No, I think the self-help narrative, having written a self-help book, I think the self-help narrative is rather wonderful. Oh, all right. Let's hear it. Well, the self-help narrative is very, very simple, gentle narrative, and all the self-help books are the same. And I love a self-help book. I've read thousands of them. <laughs> I can give you my top three right now. Yes, go on. Um, but the self-help narrative is always the same. I am the self-help writer, has experienced something, usually adversity, uh, admittedly, so there is an element of peripety there, which has revealed a secret to them, and they are now willing to share the secret with you. Right. And the secret is always the same secret. Which is? The answer is on the inside. Regardless of what form it takes, the answer was with you all along. Mm. So the ultimate self-help narrative... The Wizard of Oz. And Salman Rushdie maintains, although I can't find the source, I read it and I can't find where he wrote it in one of his essays. Salman Rushdie maintains that every film made after 1939 is just a retelling of The Wizard of Oz. Ah, Which is also dealing with drugs and addiction and all that. So it's also going into the misery. Where is there drugs and addiction in The Wizard of Oz? And I've been watching a different version. The poppy field. <laughs> It's true. You have to you have to watch more Drag Race, Andrew. He explains it all. I don't watch. RuPaul loves I don't The watch, Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I don't watch any Drag Race. I love it so much. I'm rewatching old seasons now because I can't watch the new ones here in Luxembourg. Um, but uh, but but the um, the poppy field is meant to be opium, I think. And uh, if you stay in it too long, you fall asleep, and you need friends to come and get you out of it. That's a lovely interpretation and one that I can certainly get behind. But the reason why the, the Wizard of Oz is the template for all subsequent movies or self-help books in American... Well, it's movies in American cinema anyway, is that the answer was there all along. Mm-hmm. What does she say at the very end? If I can't find it in my own backyard, I'm not going looking for it or something like that. Oh, I don't remember that. There's no place, there's no no place, place like, like home. home. She just has to... Yeah. I never... Okay, I never inter- interpreted it as meaning that but that's uh, interesting i feel like um the narrative of someone else knocking at your door is just 
because finding it within yourself is quite hard work and it takes forever. And then someone knocking at your door means suddenly it's there. You, you know, you can stop working now. Yeah, yeah, or playing the lottery. Right. And what we know from those big lottery winners, of course, is that it rarely ends well. They um, live in misery often. And I think there's an example of one person who hasn't lived in misery and she just gave it all away. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because it doesn't, it doesn't bring you what you think it will. So going back to the narrative of The Wizard of Oz or any self-help book, does that, can, are you convinced by that? That the answer is, in, I admit what you said, that it's hard work, it's really hard work, but is the answer within us all along? I, I think so, and I think that's the point I'm trying to make with this um, podcast also. Is it, In my very first episode, I spoke about how I always felt like, oh, if, once I achieve that, I'll be happy, or once I reach that, or once I prove to people, or whatever, then I'll be happy. And I've learned along the way that it's never going to be outside. But this is a conversation I have with my therapist over and over and over. I keep saying, oh, if, like, once I've done that, I'll be fine. And, I, and then I know that that's not true. I know it's somewhere within me, but it's really, really tricky to get there. To, like, because it's a different thing knowing it and actually embodying it, experiencing it. Mm. But then again, you, you just said it yourself, you know, you, the, the self-help books all come from people that have struggled with something. Yeah, but I'm not willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't necessarily buy into their narrative, but I think some of, the, some of them have got really great things to say. But do you reckon someone who had not gone through all that would find the answer, would find the key, because <clears throat> they don't know that they need to look for it? I see no correlation between their hardship and their wisdom, necessarily. I just think it's a really neat way of packaging a self-help brand. Eckhart Tolle says... Um, if things go too well for you, life will throw something at you that you'll struggle with. Mm. And then that will help you find enlightenment or whatever. Like, mm. What's his story? Where's, where's, where's there been hardship in his life? Oh, he was, uh, he was incredibly depressed and wanted to commit suicide, I think. And I don't, well, I don't remember properly. He was studying something in London and just realised that he was really depressed and then didn't want to live anymore. And then suddenly he had an epiphany. <laughs> I'm reading The Joy of Happy... What's it called? Let me see. I'm reading The Joy of Living at the moment by Yonggi Rinpoche. And so he's been a Buddhist monk all his life. And even he has a moment of crisis that he talks about in terms of his narrative. So not dissimilar from Eckhart Tolle. He experienced panic attacks, really bad panic attacks as a young, a young monk. And I think... I don't need to know that about him. I think the book's really good and I'm really enjoying reading it and I'm getting a lot from it. I don't need to know that... And I like Eckhart Tolle a lot. I don't necessarily need to know that Eckhart Tolle was going to kill himself or that Yonge Rinpoche was having panic attacks to then get something from their teachings. Hmm. And the teaching of both, I think, is the same, that we just need to stop and explore what's on the inside in order to find the happiness that's there perhaps already rather than what we do instead is we fixate on the external narrative so then the happiness narrative of Anne Hathaway being told that she's really European princess or JK Rowling suddenly f selling all these books or Billie Eilish being suddenly discovered at 13 and I question whether any of them are actually really true or whether they are just neat packagings that allow us to distract from the real story that needs to be told. 
I don't. I actually don't question that in that direction. I. I um because also there's this thing that people keep repeating. There's no overnight success. Like all those people have worked in the dark for a very long time, and then they suddenly were an overnight success. But th they've done a lot of work the entire time. But what I feel like. If um, if those people hadn't struggled themselves and they tell us, you just need to find it within, then someone who's living in poverty and uh, is being abused at home or, you know, like is really struggling with their life, they might go, well, it's easy for you to say, just find it within yourself, um, but you don't know what my reality is. So someone who's actually struggled through things has some kind of authority to say, I know what it was like and I still think this is the answer to it. Yeah, if that if that is a narrative that you enjoy, then <laughs> I think it's a perhaps a better narrative than the envoy of some obscure European country is going to come and knock on your door and tell you you're really a princess. <laughs> I think well, I know. if I had to choose one of the two narratives, I would definitely choose the, the, the I've experienced hardship and now I've found enlightenment one. That seems to me infinitely more credible and more useful as a narrative. Yeah. Well, I agree, but I think one is the fantasy. The The fantasy is, wouldn't it be so much nicer if someone could just come and save me? You mm. know, when you're exhausted and you're tired and you don't think you can find it in yourself. The other one is what you believe reality to be based on. Um, but it's just a fantasy as well, surely. That one day I will find the inner resource and appreciate my struggle and be successful is every bit a fantasy and a fictional narrative as the envoy of Moldovia or wherever it is <coughs> is going to come and tell me that I'm heir to the throne. You've as seen long it. As, I uphold their patriarchal, <laughs> as long as I uphold their patriarchal system and get married before I'm 21 or whatever the story is. Yeah, and meet all the beauty standards. But uh... Yes, exactly. Oh yeah, the transformation narrative. Let's get stuck into that, Anne. <laughs> What Anne Hathaway has to endure in order to go from ugly duckling high school girl to Central European princess. Hmm. Ooh, they wouldn't accept her as a princess with bushy eyebrows, would they? Well, but, but then in the end, but it is a highly problematic narrative, obviously. But in the end, she appears, uh, well, no, she still has straightened hair and everything. But, they, but she's, she's in her, in her tracksuit and um and got wet in the rain and that's how she gives the speech and they still applaud her because everyone now loves her because they know how beautiful she can be <laughs> and is is it the second one where she has to get married am i right i have not watched the second one maybe i should andrew yeah, i didn't make it to the end <laughs> um, well, if i did make it to the end i don't remember but obviously i'm not suggesting that that is the, the true solution to problems i'm just suggesting that as escapism because I think it embodies an, a yearning, but it isn't something that you would really want. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Do you want to talk about the transformation narrative for a bit? Sure, go on. Okay, so this was a big moment in my life. Um, this Christmas. This Christmas, I sat down with my family and I said, kids, we're going to watch the greatest movie ever made in terms of its narrative structure and its impact and power and its durability. The fact it's still just as funny and brilliant now as it was when it was made in the 80s. And it was a real make and break moment for me because if my kids had said this movie is shit, we can't watch it, I would have had to probably give them to an orphanage. That was how important it was to me. <laughs> that my kids like this movie because it really is the best movie ever made. And it is. You know what I'm talking about, right? No. 
I was going to say When Harry Met Sally, but that's not um, that's not the no. 80s, is it? You not hate even, that movie, don't you? Not even up there. Yeah, I hate that movie. <laughs> what is it? Space Odyssey. No. <laughs> no, that was stuff I learned at RCS. Okay, never mind. Different teacher. Okay. <laughs> Tootsie, of course. Oh, no, I've still not seen it. Ah, oh, yes. There we have it. A metamorphosis narrative in which Dustin Hoffman manages to get a job by shaking the reputation of being a difficult actor by dressing up as a woman and being a daytime soap megastar. And of course, everything he learns by doing it. And the famous lines he say at the he says at the end, I was a better man being a woman with you than I ever was being a man. I just have to learn how to do it without the dress. And I believe the writers stole that from a Farquhar play. I believe it's the end of a Farquhar comedy, but I'm not sure which one. So no. don't, I'd have to flick through and find it. Right. And so what does that, what does that tell you? Well, what it tells us is that sometimes a complete metamorphosis is required in order for learning to happen. And I think what interests me about Tootsie is it seems, according to the 11-year-old and 17-year-old who were watching it for the first time, it seems to have stood the test of time. They didn't think, oh, this is awful sexist nonsense. It actually reads as being sort of quite 21st century feminist in many ways. Okay. And the women represented aren't just either tragic or figures of fun. Mm -hmm. The women are given real choices, as well as the main figure being a man who has to pretend to be a woman in order to get work and they they were they they well they knew the stakes were very high and that they would find themselves you know on the streets homeless if they didn't like it so there's quite a lot of pressure on them to like it but they both really enjoyed it and that was hugely gratifying to me that the greatest movie ever made is still the greatest movie ever made would you then say that's also a turnaround absolutely absolutely it's a it's a it's a peripety it's also not the solution. It's still just interesting escapism. Yeah, and he doesn't... We don't know whether he... What's lovely about it is we don't know what happens to him at the end. It's a, it's a narrative of reconciliation, which I think is missing in, in, in well, Western narrative, North American, Northern European narrative. Narrative of reconciliation, which I think is a much more um, honest narrative to model our lives by seems to be missing but what we don't know whether he you know we don't know whether they become a couple the, the woman he's fallen in love with who's also on the daytime soap we don't know that they just walk down the street together at the end but he reconciles with her and he apologizes and he's willing to see the world from her point of view mm -hmm. for the first time and he also reconciles with the father her father who of course has fallen in love with him dressed <laughs> as a woman right of course <laughs> So it's a narrative of transformation, it's a narrative of self-discovery, and it's a narrative of, of um, reconciliation. And that, do you think, is a more um, useful narrative for us in our real lives? Absolutely. I just wish there were... It's just not a very exciting narrative to tell. I think lots of kids get very confused by Studio Ghibli movies if they're brought up on Disney movies. Because there's something about the ending of those movies, you know, Howl's Moving Castle, and whereby reconciliation is the... What's the one set in the bathhouse? I love that one. Spirited Away. 
Yeah. You know, watching that, kids who are used to, I think, a different narrative find that quite confusing because there's no sense of bad or good, the, the goody beating the baddie at the end. Mm-hmm. There's just a sense of everyone being reconciled and that's the solution to the problem. And I think kind of like a more, a more integrated narrative of good and bad is perhaps more helpful than I succeeded because I was persistent or I succeeded because I was virtuous. Yes. Yeah. The the idea of having to be special. Compared to Disney where, for example, the baddie who is always ugly and usually has a British accent ends up being killed or accidentally killed. Right. And the, the beautiful goodies thrive. The, that is quite a difficult switch in sensibility for some children when they are exposed to a different narrative yeah yeah but ultimately i think a narrative of reconciliation is going to make us happier and there is still peripety in reconciliation than a rags to riches story or i'm secretly the long lost daughter of the moldavian royal family So your issue is not with um, the seeking of some sort of happiness in your life, but with the way we tell the story of what what it means to find happiness. God, I wish I'd said that right at the beginning. That's brilliant. (laughs) Okay. I'll just add it to the beginning. (laughs) Exactly. My issue is not with the need or the desire to free yourself from suffering and seek happiness. I think that is completely human. Which human being doesn't want that for themselves? But my issue is around the narratives that we are forced to consume very often because there's little alternative, which I don't think necessarily is compatible with happiness that might be available to us. It's the Bose stratagem. The, the, sorry, what? The Farquhar play. Ah, did you just Google I'm, it? Yeah, I'm pretty certain. Well, I've got a 50-50 chance that it's either the recruiting officer or the bow stratagem. Okay. So that narrows it a little bit, doesn't it? It does, yes. Oh, that's a woman having to pretend to be a man, I think, right. in both of those, rather than a man pretending to be a woman. So it's still a story of transformation through gender. But that's all the Shakespeare plays as well, no? Yeah, and RuPaul, which <laughs> I don't watch, but you do. It's wonderful. What is the attraction? What's, what's, the, what's the narrative in RuPaul and beyond... In Drag Race, beyond um, beyond men dressing up as women and performing, which I'm not dismissing. I think that's a, a, a really extraordinary art. I, I you know I'm not mm. dismissing drag at all. I mean, this is a lot of things in one. It's obviously a co- competition show, and it's it's also feeding on the rags to riches narrative. It's all these queens that came from nowhere and suddenly have the chance at winning a million dollars and becoming famous, and their entire lives are changed in the blink of an eye. I, so I think uh, much of the narrative is also how uh, they say you're not uh, becoming someone different when you go into drag, but you become more of yourself. So it's actually helping them reveal who they, who they really are when they're dressing up as someone else. I think similarly to how if there's like, um, uh, what do you call those, the, the balls with the mask balls? Oh yeah, mask balls. Is that what they're called? Mask ball. That people wearing a mask are so much more themselves because they they feel suddenly free to actually be who they are for some reason. 
And is that clear in RuPaul's Drag Race? Um, it comes up over and over again. Yes, that that they feel more confident and that they can they, that they can actually step into who they really are when they dress up as women. But also, um, there's there's a whole other thing of like acceptance of the gay community, and there's all these issues that come up, and also um, people of color, and uh, and they were talking about the shootings in Florida where um, the Pulse Club where where there was this like attack on. On a, on a gay club and all of that. So they talk about a lot of social injustices as well in the in the show. So the drag really just operates as some sort of threshold into much wider sort of global and current affairs and topics around those things. It comes up, yeah. I mean, it's not used as... It's not done for that reason, but when they're, like, getting dressed and stuff and they have conversations, they often they often show those conversations because they talk about quite important stuff, yeah. But but there's a lot of people that have issue with the show as well. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't necessarily advertise it as being 100% the best thing there is, but um, but I think it does a lot of good. And why are you drawn to it? I don't know. I love a competition. <laughs> <laughs> you like there to be a loser and a winner. I know, you know what? I like This is back to the whole thing we were talking about. This is someone knocking at your door. Again, I love watching um, Cheer, that, that documentary series on, on Netflix. I love watching competitions in general. I love the idea of if you just work really, really hard within like a, a structured environment, you can achieve something. And life is not that way. You know, mm. you, I, there's nothing to be won. There's no guarantee that if I if I do better than all my competition, then I'll win win the prize. There is not necessarily a prize to be won, and I like uh, I like when there's a prize to be won. If we'd had time, yes, we'd have gone into the joys of medieval narrative. Well, we can do that next time. But okay. I'm well, I'm happy is... to keep talking if you want no, to. No, this is I my just... suggestion. Okay. My suggestion is we oh. see how this one this one lands with yes. your two listeners. <laughs> You're not allowed to make fun of that. Only me. <laughs> <laughs> and we see how it lands and then if there is a need for the happiness of uh, medieval narrative happiness to be found in the narrative of medieval storytelling I'll, I'll i'll come back next year great so you know we'll talk about gawain and the green knight and tristan and isolde and parzival that's all very exciting yes. to me yeah yeah well we yeah we but we don't have to wait a year but we can make it okay we, we, yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Okay. I really am. I know that sounded really sarcastic, but I really am. Um, <laughs> so how would you wrap this up then? What are your suggestions in terms of the search for happiness? Okay, so my, our obsession with peripety and turnaround is um, taking us in the wrong direction. Right. Um, much more honest narrative is going into moments of choice and exploring why people made their decisions. I think that takes us to a much more genuine place. Mm -hmm. And think twice before you tell your kids the story of Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> That's my other takeaway. Great. Thank you, Andrew. You're welcome. Anytime. And that was my conversation with Andrew. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I had a lot of fun talking to him and I learned a lot of things about narratives and about life and about myself. I hope you learned something too. Do check out the show notes for more information on Andrew, for a link to his website and his books. And check out rtl.lu for more information, more podcasts and so on. And I'll see you again next month. Thank you so much. Goodbye.